This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas and educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Today, we talk about education and conflict in Burma slash Myanmar. My guest is Rosalie Metro, an assistant teaching professor in the College of Education at the University of Missouri, Columbia. As an anthropologist of education, Rose is interested in the conflicts that arise around history, identity, and language inside the classroom. Her latest commentary, published in the Compare Forum, argues that we need to consider the third face of education. You know, it's mixed, right? The sort of third face of education idea. It, in the past, there were so few people engaged in the process of writing history textbooks, and their ideology was so clear that the negative face was pretty one-sided. But these new textbooks are kind of a mixture. These days, there's support from funders and organizations that have their own priorities. Local officials are involved. And then there are local and international consultants who end up doing a lot of the work of writing these textbooks. It's no that they end up a little bit kind of mixed up or in the middle. I mean, there are just a lot of cooks in the kitchen there. Rose has been researching Burma slash Myanmar for the past two decades. She is the author of The Histories of Burma, a source-based approach to teaching Myanmar's history and teaching U.S. history thematically, document-based lessons for the secondary classroom. Her world history textbook will be published by Teachers College Press later this year. Rose Metro, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thank you. So I want to talk a little bit today about education and conflict and post-conflict societies. There's supposedly there's a, a quite an influential book called The Two Faces of Education in Ethnic Conflict. Can you explain a little bit about what that book says and why it's been influential in the study of conflict and education in conflict and post-conflict societies? Sure. So this was a report written actually for UNICEF and edited by Kenneth Bush and Diana Saltarelli in 2000. And they broke down like the potential positive impacts of education. So how education can increase tolerance of other ethnic or linguistic groups, how educational opportunity can reduce drivers of conflict, how inclusive citizenship can be promoted, how history can be, as they put it, disarmed as well as potential negative consequences, that education could be a weapon of war in the way that it's denied to certain populations, um, and also in its content. So history is often told in a way that supports a particular political point of view and causes students to hate or dislike people from other ethnic groups. These are the two faces, in, in so to speak. So the positive face that, that can reduce conflict, that can create you know, positive citizens that contribute to society, but also a negative face that is education that is weaponized for war or to reproduce war, uh, and also the content of education itself can be, quote-unquote, bad, a bad face, a negative face. Exactly. Yes. And I think it was an important piece because that negative face of education is often underestimated. So maybe people hadn't thought so much of education as a force driving conflict, but only as a force that could make things better. So I think they really did a service to the field in revealing this second face. And so how did this book 
or this report, this idea that there's two faces of education, how did it impact your own work? Well, when I first encountered it early in my academic career, um, I was really taken with it because I felt like it described a lot of what I was seeing. Um, So my research is on Myanmar or Burma, and I was working with Burmese refugees in Thailand and thinking about how um, history textbooks produced by the military dictatorship that ruled the country from 1962 to 2010 really make ethnic conflicts worse by telling this fairy tale that Burma was a big happy family until British colonization and then that the dictatorship was carrying on this benevolent rule of the majority group, the Burmans, over all the other groups. But when ethnic minority people looked around them, they could see that their own histories were being left out. And so some groups created their own textbooks that ended up being kind of mirror images of government textbooks in which their group were the heroes and the Burmans were the villains. But either way, these one-sided narratives really represented to me the potential of education to fuel conflict. Right. So hence the negative face, to use that term. Yes, exactly. So in your work in Burma and in on the Thai border with various ethnic minorities living in Myanmar at the time, did you try and affect any change? Did you try and, you know, create a good face, a positive face of education in that region, in that part of the world? I did. I did a couple of things. So as part of my dissertation research in 2008 and 2009, I co-facilitated workshops for teachers from Burma from different ethnic backgrounds and We talked about different versions of history and the messages that students took away from them and discussed ways to teach history in order to promote reconciliation. But what I realized was that that was much harder than I had initially thought. So this positive face is kind of elusive. And um, my favorite story is that we brought teachers together to try to create a history textbook that all of them could accept and they couldn't even agree on a title for the book. So we spent days on this because some ethnic minority people didn't accept any title with Myanmar or Burma in it, and Burman people insisted on that, and it was really quite difficult. So what we ended up doing, I mean, I kind of realized that the attempt to create one story was just doomed. And so along with a Burmese colleague named Aung Khain, I ended up creating a thematic document-based curriculum called Histories of Burma, which was published by a local NGO, Mo'u, several years back. And we collected about 100 primary source documents referencing many different groups. And our idea was that if students and teachers had access to those primary source documents, they could interpret them in many different ways instead of being told what to think by one authority or the other, whether it was the government or an ethnic armed group, and that this critical thinking about history and identity could really promote that positive face of education to ameliorate conflict. So were the themes that you decided on, were they contested? Well, not so much because it was just the two of us doing it. Um, And I think it's not, you know, we chose things like we did one on British colonization and one on kind of national identity versus ethnic identity. And no, I don't think people would disagree on the themes Um, nor really on what to include. I think the disagreements would come about in how people interpreted those documents. But in a sense, that was the goal that you were sort of aiming for, right? The the idea that you let different groups and different people interpret the primary sources 
in different ways to allow for a particular discourse or, or conversation that that might elevate or challenge people's own ideas of history. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think when you have one story in your mind about history, it's very easy to discount the truths of other people and other groups coming from different backgrounds. And whereas if you have these documents that show that other things happened and people had other views, you kind of have to confront those. You know, whether you agree with them or not, you have to acknowledge that they exist. And I think that that's half the battle. Right. And so what happened with this textbook that you helped produce? So it's in use um, in Burma and then also along the Thai-Burma border. It's, it was intended for um, post-secondary school students, so students who are kind of between high school and college, and it's used a lot in, um, in the private sector because you <laughs> can't use it in a government school for sure. So all kinds of different institutions use this as a resource. I think people use it for self-study or in ethnic areas where they have a little more freedom with what kind of curriculum to use. I think it's been used there as well. And have you received any feedback on, you know, has it actually begun to produce movements towards this positive face of education? It might be elusive, but, you know, did this book perhaps make a small step in that direction? That's something I haven't really researched. So I go back to Burma every year or so and I often give presentations on this topic or do teacher trainings. I don't think it's been around long enough to really kind of measure um, the impact that it's had. I would be curious to see. It sounds like a good dissertation topic for some future PhD student. Yeah, (laughs) right. (laughs) So, but what's interesting in Myanmar or in Burma, you know, it's a contested contested name of even the country, is that in 2010, as, as you said, the government changed. So what happened with textbooks, in history textbooks in in that country? Yeah, so since 2010, various intergovernmental organizations like the Asian Development Bank, UNESCO, and JICA, the Japan International Cooperation Agency, have been working together with Burma's MOE on all kinds of education, and that includes rewriting the curriculum. So, so far they've done kindergarten to grade three textbooks and teacher's guides, and as part of the National Education Strategic Plan, that includes goals like making education more inclusive and relevant to all students. And one big change is that whereas in the past, history textbooks had been written by the Myanmar Historical Commission, which is a group of about a dozen scholars working very closely with the government, that process has opened up a bit. And I wrote about this recently in a local magazine called Frontier Myanmar, and I'll probably publish some academic papers on it as well. But yeah, very interesting process and interesting changes to the textbooks as well. So opening up, this commission opened up meaning that members from the public were invited in? Like who became invited into this commission? No, no. So the commission still exists as it is, and there's definitely no members of the public involved. It's more like, um, so... The, the intergovernmental organizations that are funding and sponsoring this process had input into the development of the textbooks, which had not happened in the past. Okay, so they created some new textbooks and teacher's guides. And what do they look like? You know, how would you evaluate, you know, the content or the two faces of education, so to speak, in this context? Right. So I think we still see the negative face of education 
partly because a lot of the material was just reproduced word for word from old textbooks. Um, so just as in the past, the heroes in social studies textbooks are almost all Burman Buddhist military leaders or kings, and that's really alienating to groups who see those same leaders as oppressors. So that's definitely still the negative face. In terms of the positive face, I think there have been some changes to teaching methodology. So for the first time, students are asked open-ended questions instead of just being expected to repeat what the textbook says. And I think that that practice in coming up with your own ideas is just really crucial to questioning those meta-narratives of like us versus them that can fuel conflict. Right. So it's a little less of a dichotomy. Yeah. And, and there are some small steps forward in terms of inclusivity. So a Christian church in a Pol Karen village was shown and described in a social studies textbook, whereas in the past, only Buddhism, which is practiced by the majority, was mentioned. Right. So and that's a sign that they're trying to change some of that very nationalistic, Burman nationalistic sort of elements in textbooks from before. Yeah, I think so. And what about you said that process opened up to some development agencies that were providing funding and then obviously providing some intellectual and uh, had their own agendas in this process. Did you see any of their interests, the aid agencies, for instance, their interests finding their way into these textbooks? Yes. So I think that these international organizations kind of prioritize more of a peace education mindset and toning down that Burman supremacy in textbooks. But the way that ended up being implemented is interesting. So in the past, many Stories about history involved Burman kings conquering, or as the textbooks put it, unifying ethnic minorities such as Mon people. But in these new textbooks, the ethnic identifiers have been removed. So everyone is just Myanmar, which is a word that the government uses to refer to all ethnic groups that they consider indigenous to the country and which many ethnic minority people do not accept as including them at all. And in any case, making this change they ended up kind of making Burman supremacy invisible and erasing ethnic minorities from history. So you don't know anymore that that, that Burman king conquered the Mon people or unified with them or whatever. The people on both sides of those are just called Myanmar, basically, or the enemies are unnamed. And I think that these changes are really well-intentioned. But the way that these ideologies of peace and multiculturalism have been applied is not necessarily going to have the positive effect that's intended. Hence this sort of third face of education idea. You know, it's mixed, right? It, in the past, there were so few people engaged in the process of writing history textbooks and their ideology was so clear that the negative face, or as I saw the negative face, was pretty one-sided. Um, and then what I was trying to do with histories of Burma was a totally different approach that I, you know, probably naive hope can help. But these new textbooks are kind of a mixture. And I think that that really speaks to the process by which curricula are rewritten in post-conflict environments. So these days there's support from funders and organizations that have their own priorities. Local officials are involved. And then there are local and international consultants who end up doing a lot of the work of writing these textbooks um, or revising them. And so I think it's no wonder that they end up a little bit kind of mixed up or in the middle. I mean, there are just a lot of cooks in the kitchen there. I mean, it's such a fascinating 
idea, this idea that, you know, it's not either the positive or negative face, but there's some in-between third face that sort of just, it produces curriculum material that is just sort of okay. It's education that is both bad and good simultaneously. You know, I, there's so much to sort of unpack there because it really challenges that initial book or report that you read about education being either good or bad. And so I guess, why is this even important? Like, I mean, is this is this something that we should be saying this is just how education is? Should we not be striving for that positive good face of education and we should just sort of settle for this third face okay education? I don't think we should settle. I don't think we should settle, but I think we should acknowledge it when we see it. So I was inspired to write this compare piece um, when I was at a panel at CIES 2019 on schooling in conflict and post-conflict societies. And a couple of researchers on this panel cited this piece. And it's always definitely in the back of my mind when I see panels like this. And so some presentations really fit those extremes. So for instance, there was um, one researcher from the University of Quebec, Montreal, um, Olivier Arvissé, and he was presenting on the Islamic States curriculum, which is a pretty good example of the negative face of education. It's like, if it weren't so horrible, it would almost be funny. The, the math problems are like, Islamic State freedom fighters have 420 guns, and then they kill 200 infidels and get more. Like, how many guns do they have now? And there's pictures of guns on every page and it's very extreme so like we want to acknowledge that those extremes exist but then some of the other presentations really showed more of the complexity so there was one by a friend of mine Andrew Swindell who's a grad student at UCLA and he was looking at the implementation of mother tongue based multilingual education in Myanmar amidst this ongoing civil war and demo so-called democratic transition. And he was talking about how there's such high hopes for changes in language pedagogy, empowering ethnic minority students and ending these decades of repression of minority languages. But when he saw this policy implemented, it was kind of more complicated. So the goal was to have students become fluent in their mother tongue in English and Burmese. And people really did like being able to study in their mother tongues, but they didn't quite end up fluent in all three languages. And so as a result, they weren't necessarily prepared for those higher education or professional goals they had. So it's like positive changes are being made, but it's not yet really addressing those structural inequalities um, in opportunity that drive ethnic conflict. So when I see things like that or... There was another person on the panel, Christiana Callan Kelly, who's a grad student at UPenn, and she was presenting on Sierra Leone's post-conflict curriculum, and she cited Bush and Saltarelli. But at the same time, the data she was presenting is really rich and complex and perhaps not necessarily totally captured by it. And she had a unique perspective because she's from Sierra Leone and knows the context really intimately. And I was just having this feeling that, like, as we move toward decolonizing peace education research and having more people from the global south not only applying but also generating theories, we can kind of get at those complexities more and we're not just going to be presented with this negative or positive face, but more of the in-between. It seems like, you know, there's often dichotomies that are constructed in educational research, particularly in development, you know, good or bad 
public or private. It's that very dichotomy that sort of limits our own thinking, and it doesn't allow for that complexity with which you're talking about. And so it's almost like we need to, you know, we, as in researchers, need to overcome that sort of that pull towards viewing things in just a dichotomy between good and bad, positive and negative. You know, is that sort of what you're trying to do is to disrupt this this very dichotomy that's that's common in the field of post-conflict and conflict studies? I think so. Yeah. And I mean, I think a lot of times we're drawn to those dichotomies because they're easier to visualize and measure. And when we're looking at a big pile of data, the extremes kind of stand out first, but we don't have to leave it there. I mean, also (laughs) breaking down binaries is in itself kind of a cliche, just as much as the dichotomies are. Um, So I'm, I'm thinking about what's beyond that as well, and I'm hoping that listeners will weigh in and contact me and tell me like what I'm missing and, and what comes next. So once we've broken down, broken down this binary, like what, what comes out of that um, is something I'm curious about. Yeah, and, and certain challenges. I mean, one of the things that you said earlier that really struck me was how the new textbooks in Myanmar were in a way erasing ethnicity, and it was almost this sort of post-ethnicity moment. And that was sort of being driven or as it was resulting from maybe, a, you know, from probably many factors, but some of it is from the aid agencies that were sort of involved in this and the peace studies, as you said, they're sort of focusing on getting beyond the, the ethnic identifiers as a way of sort of unifying a, a war-torn country. But that has serious challenges as as I think you mentioned and you know it, it moving to the third phase perhaps brings us to this you know this this issue of centrism and this issue of you know maybe we are you know being in the center is somehow post ideological and we're moving beyond any of these extreme cases and therefore more pragmatic but that in itself is also an ideological position right and has consequences yes and i think one danger is that indoctrination can become more subtle so in the past in Burma, so many people just assumed that if the government said it, it was a lie because the textbooks so obviously contradicted what they saw around them. As these most obvious examples of extreme nationalism or offensive content are removed, I think the textbooks could become a more effective vehicle for propaganda or kind of marketing this idea of a nation that still isn't inclusive, but that's at least a little easier for people to swallow. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's exactly right. I think power becomes, you know, the power of the state becomes a bit more covert in a way through the official curriculum then. Yeah, I think that's true. But at the same time, you know, I mean, I think one of the ideas of the third face, this notion, this concept of just, you know, okay, education that is just okay, or in your new piece, you, you say, meh, the meh face, the, you know, the whatever, it's, 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 it's okay, it's not okay, it's, you know, it's whatever, um, is that it's, it, to me, it begins to challenge the very idea of progress, which I think many researchers in our field assume to be the case educational progress is you know things will always get better in some linear fashion so long as we get educated and get more people educated do you see any sort of challenge to this notion of progress with the meh face of education i do i mean i think i know that i and i would guess that a lot of us have really ambivalent feelings about education 
Like sometimes it seems like it's the only thing that's going to change the world. Like we just have to do it right. And then other times it just seems hopelessly doomed to reinscribe oppression and just be problematic and all these things. And I think it's humbling to focus on mediocrity, although it's not as sexy. I think that we can admit that sometimes education just kind of supports the status quo or is kind of okay, better than nothing, but really isn't making things better or making things worse. And that the middle is always moving. So what was considered normal in the past becomes thought of as extreme. And then this meth face is kind of changing as well, that it's not a linear move toward goodness. It's a really contested process in which what's considered good is always changing. Yeah, I mean, that seems to be true about politics in so many countries where, you know, what is seen as the center is is constantly moving in, in different directions and in different moments in time. Right. I mean, I think that's the potential of this idea in a way that our goal might be to move the middle rather than to move the extremes. You know what I mean? Mm, yeah, exactly. Move the center, move the meh education closer to the positive face of education. So to change what's considered normal or standard. Yeah, I mean, I, I keep thinking of it in terms of sort of American and British politics, where the center has really become neoliberal, where marketization of education has become something that was promoted by the Labour Party or by the Democrats and has now become sort of common and standard and understood as as the way things should work, when in fact it's actually quite a radical position to assume that education should be marketized. And so there's this big pull now to try and change that center, to change what is assumed to be, you know, to start from the, the, the point of having private markets in education is not normal. And I think that's the political struggle that these countries are are sort of undergoing right now. And, and I see this similar happening in the conflict education as well that, that you're talking about in Myanmar. Yeah, I can see that. You know, all the structures that kind of support education are called into question at the same time as the curriculum is being revised and things are kind of up in the air. So if you were to go back to, you know, 2006 or 2007, when you were developing that textbook where you had all the disagreement with even the name of the textbook and you settled on a thematic version of a textbook with primary sources to let people make up their own mind and their own perspectives. Thinking about meh education or the third face, is there anything you would do differently today? I don't think so. I mean, I think I, <laughs> for better or for worse, I really can't let go of this optimistic viewpoint that like, if people just really have the chance to look at those sources and talk with each other about them, that it will help. But I think also, you know, earlier you asked about, have I seen the effects? Like, is this working? That's where I think it's important to really have humility that, you know, students might take this textbook and make something completely different out of it than what I envisioned they would. And it's such a complex process. You know, it's like, I think as curriculum writers or as researchers, we often think, well, if we just do this intervention, it'll work, you know, but that takes away a lot of the agency of the people interacting with these different interventions, like the teachers and students using these textbooks. And we really don't know what they're going to do with them. There's a lot of unknowns. I don't think I would change what I did with the histories of Burma textbook or with the, you know, I wrote 
two textbooks on the same model, one for U.S. history that was published in 2017 and another about world history that's going to come out this or next year. And I really believe in that model, but I also think it's not a straightforward process, you know, of just sort of making things better or making things worse. It, it really depends on how it's used. Well, Rose Metro, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed and keep in touch and let us know how this, these different books and textbooks, you know, what the impact is in the future. It'd be really interesting to, to do a cross-national comparison in a way. Definitely. Thank you so much. Rosalie Metro is an assistant teaching professor at the University of Missouri, Columbia. She has published widely on Burma slash Myanmar. A transcript of today's interview can be found at freshedpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not Fresh Ed, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews really do help. Fresh Ed's team includes Sherry Yang, Hong Zong, Lushik Waba, Fatih Akhtas, and In Jung Cho. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Fresh Ed is an independently run podcast without advertisements and is made possible by the support of the Open Society Foundations, NORAG, and listeners like you. Please consider becoming a monthly sponsor of Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com support. All U.S.-based donations are tax-deductible. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.